right, welcome back. So this is part three in the series on the core of conflict in marriage. So if you if you haven't heard part one and part two, make sure you do that because that lays the the key foundation to this third and final part. However, here's a very quick recap to get you up to speed. So the first main idea that we talked about was that um, all of the culture or our own sinful desires wants to erase all differences between men and women. Scripture suggests otherwise, that there are actually differences, and that includes the nature of our core sins. But many people, including many who are churched, many who are elders and pastors and preachers, they, they, they can't get their arm around that to, to really state that or wrestle with the scriptures because it runs so contrary to their natural state. The second related concept is if we do believe we all descend from Adam and Eve, as I do, and I believe is stated in the Bible, then understanding what the original sin of all and that gives us a sense of the nature of man and woman should help us to get to the foundation of our own personal sins and relationships in marriage. And there is great benefit to understanding this. In other words, this is not just a fairy tale. There is something deeply meaningful and useful and applicable from understanding that. And then the last is to review some of the sins that we're going over, which was sin, Eve's sin was a couple. They were a couple fold. It was a desire to be like God, to be able to judge. And that included things like people's intentions, being able to say, I know what you intended and what you mean, and to govern morality. There's also a temptation to be easily deceived by, in this case, the serpent and those um, deceptions often appeal to pragmatism and aesthetics. And then the last sin, which is actually the, the, the curse from God, is to control her husband. So now we're going to turn a little bit at the men and then try to find an, an antidote. There's much more that we can go into, as is often the case, into the nature of those sins and how we depart from God's word. But I want to end in something proactively positive. So let's take a look at man's sin and curse. And so this is Genesis 3 also. To Adam, he, God, said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree, about which I command you, you must not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. So his sin is listening to Eve when she wanted him to stray from obeying God. And it's very easy to gloss over that. It's very easy to sort of like, oh, okay, yeah, so you, so you listened. But unfortunately, this nature of the sin is both more common and is a far greater sin than just being deceived by Satan. Being deceived by Satan is serious. Being the gullible one to Satan, being the one deceived, that that's not to be taken lightly. That that one should be top of mind for every wife and every woman preparing for marriage. But to 
receive that deception and to do it anyway and likely not being deceived is far greater. But it's a very difficult bind for men. They have it hard for the culture and their own instinct is to listen to their wives and to please them. The whole phrase, happy wife, happy life, is an is an, a, a lie that has an entire grip on the culture and the church. And it is not true. And we will go further into this. I'm not saying make your wife unhappy, but I'm saying the belief that do what your wife says to make her happy is the right way is a lie. And if I were Satan or the serpent or the enemy, I would love if every church um, going, every Christian male believed that. So it, it feels hard um, when this fact is true that the wife is gullible has a desire to control her husband often to do something contrary to God's will. And the act of control tends to have that. She will get her way one way or the other, and it may cause conflict. She may get her way, and the husband relents, kind of like what happened, and then disaster happens. She wants her way. She finds different ways to get at it. He has a sense of, I, I, I don't think this is right. I think there's a biblical approach to this. Maybe he's not even that strong as a Christian, and that's, that's all on him. But he's limited to how much he can push back. Because even if he pushes back and is seeking a godly approach, it is very easy and very common for a woman to just say, I'm offended, and you're controlling and abusing. And end of story. The man is dead. Um, <laughs> so, uh, this is something that is a very hard situation to to handle, and it doesn't lessen the responsibility for God, for men to push up against it. But they don't have that much supporting them, so that's why trying to have this instruction and finding a way for both men and women to understand that is important. See, when God's proper order is fully understood, this becomes much less of a problem. When everyone agrees in the nature of the order and he knows he is first for God and has that responsibility, then, as we see what Paul writes in Ephesians of washing his wife in God's word, ensuring that she goes back to it and she delights in that, then you're less likely to have this. So, he unfortunately owns the responsibility. So, even though the deception, the way the snake gets into the garden and really gets into it is the snake and the serpent um, through, through Eve, God holds Adam accountable. God asks Adam what's going on. And you'll see this, this often happens and it weighs heavily and there's no space often for the man to say, I... I I'm being held accountable. I need to do the right thing and then have that incorporated in the relationship. It all almost never happens. And so let, let's take a look at what God wants. He, he desires that. So we now seen the nature of his sin, according to Genesis, was listening to his wife. And that's a much deeper problem than just, oh, he listened to his wife. There is much in that of the nature of this bind. Now, at the same time, he carries this unrelated curse 
that's not about the relationship. And this is often missing is the entire world of work will weigh as toil. It'll be the burden to his soul. It'll be his source of identity and there will be great struggle. So the battle is often the wife is seeking to control and the man comes home and he is being shamed and ridiculed and controlled and at the same time needs to deal with that and with what God wants. And at the same time, he goes back outside to work and it will be a battle upon battle. And some disaster will break. Something will break under that contest. And that wasn't the intent. He was meant to sort of keep and maintain and he named the animals like he he was more chill i mean he he got some kudos in the garden and now it's about toil of the soil and so he's got the man's got two fronts he's dealing with the control and remember we talked about the same greek world i don't know that i listened to a pastor who just said yeah it's not true but he gave no defense but until somebody can give me an alternate defense If the same word is used in the same book, I'm going to presume that that's a valid context. And that word for control, which is often written as desire or translated as desire, is the same one that God uses to describe how sin has a desire for Cain. desires to control, to overtake his life, and not for really positive things. That's an internal battle within the household And then the outside goes back outside and is beaten up at at work, consumed with work. Okay. So what is the antidote? What is the antidote to this dynamic? Well, the first is there's plenty of sin to go around for both both genders. So I want to make sure that that's clear. But part of being a Christian is being able to be fully honest and to face and encounter the whole truth, the full truth, in light of the full gospel, under the context of the full counsel of God, and doing it with an awareness of the context, which is your culture, and acknowledging that one key enemy to a full Christian life is the culture. And so, what that means is we don't actually address the lies and the and the um, elements of the culture that could be slipping into our thought lives. They could be slipping into churches themselves from the culture. We literally are allowing the prowling lion of the enemy into our home. And one way that it comes in is to stay above at the surface with what I call easy Christianese answers. Hey, just love more. Just listen more. Just communicate more. And I guarantee you, if you go to most Christian uh, marriage seminars, it'll have ultimately this. Just listen more. Just communicate more. Be more loving. Be more forgiving. And I'm not saying those are wrong. And I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. But that, you don't need to be a Christian to hear that and to understand that, for starters. And you don't need the whole Bible in order to get to that. You just find a couple of sentences and you're there. There's much more 
richness to our human nature and God's design and His truth, if we're open to it. For example, if I were the enemy to Christians and I wanted to slowly disrupt the church from within, that's the lie I would propagate. I would say, oh, the answer to your marriage is just this. Communicate more, love more, listen more, forgive more. And, and I would instead steer people away from actually looking deeply at understanding God's word to really have a sense and a discernment for the ravages of sin and the legacy of what that is if we don't take care of it and how deep and flawed we are, really are in grappling with that without a perfect savior who is willing to die to take all that upon himself and just erase that. Now, there's a lot more we can go into the nature of this conflicts, but I don't want to spend time on that at this moment. I want to end as quickly as positively as possible. And so the counterbalances show an illustration. Now, the illustration, unfortunately, is about what the wife could do. And it feels like it's beating on the wife because saying here's a good example from the Bible. But I actually don't look at it that way. I actually think it's actually the right way to approach this because there isn't enough emphasis on this because no one's going to get to this emphasis of what a wife can do, the power that she does have according to God, because no one wanted to touch the first part of it, which is the problem, the unique problems from women. So remember, there's a key moment in Genesis. God created Adam and then after that created woman, he needed to fix something. Now, he didn't make a mistake. I think he saw something and said, oh, it's not good. He needs a helpmeet. And then through Genesis 2, where he talks about that, the phrase that's used is primarily ezer. And I believe that's a Hebrew word. And it's often used in the context, and I think this deserves its entire deep dive separate from this, but it, it's, it's, it's often the concept of God or the Holy Spirit in a saving sense, sometimes in a military, it's a rescuer. This is not a weak thing. This is not a maid. This is a power that is intended and necessary for man to, uh, in essence, survive and I think when we come into that with that opening, that provides much more power and acceptance on both sides. The problem is most people in their natural state read help meet and are like, out, I don't want to be that. Or sometimes the men say, I don't need it. But there is a much deeper and more critical role that this is. So I don't want to spend as much time dissecting that. What I want to do is get to an illustration, and it is Abigail, the wife of David. And this you can find this in 1 Samuel 25. So here are the big beats of this, 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 this moment. So Abigail is married to this guy named Nabal. And David asks his men to carry a message to Nabal. And it's a message of greeting and conveying that they treated Nabal's well, men well during, I guess, some kind of battle and uh, asks for some supplies, you know, maybe food, water. Now, Nabal instead insults the men 
when he hears these requests. And David then hears about these insults, and he's like, attack. He's like, strap on your swords, we're going to decimate this guy. And Abigail, the wife of Nabal, hears and averts this disaster by de-escalating David. Now, um, after he she, she de-escalates David, he doesn't go in and kills everybody, she then turns to Nabal and tells him what she has done. And Nabal's heart stops, turns to stone, and then God takes Nabal's life, and Abigail marries David happily ever after, something. So, it's a cool story, and we're going to break this down and how it benefits you. But, before I do this, I want to describe why do I put any stock in this story at all? It's just one of many stories in the Old Testament, right? I put more stock in this one as I do when they all have this characteristic in that it is not primarily an anecdote of how to be a good wife. It is telling the gospel. So Nabal represents us, you and me, a sinning world. And there is an offense, right? He's insulting to David. And it seems sort of petty, David's response. Well, you offended me. I'm going to kill you guys all. Send an army and destroy you. But if we look back, we can say, oh, but if David represents God, then that offense that we do by violating his laws, by dishonoring, by disobeying him, those are all justified for his wrath to destroy us. It, 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 we, like He is God and he is holy and we often violate that many times a day. And so David represents God in that wrath of destruction for dishonoring him. Now, Abigail comes, and the reason why I'm like, I think there's more to this is Abigail rides on a donkey, and he acts as a propitiant, like shielding Nabal from God's wrath. Now, hopefully, those two things make you think of another person, Jesus, who also came on a donkey and is also propitiant. So, as a result, David's wrath is held at bay just in the same way that Jesus holds it as bay for those who, in faith alone, receive God's grace. Now, when told this truth, Nabal doesn't understand it, and his heart goes cold and dead, and, and then he just actually dies. And this, too, is like the gospel. There are many, whether they go to church or not, they simply don't have the eyes to see and the ears to hear, so they never repent of their sin. They never put their trust in Christ, and they too will die. So this is, this is an important illustration of a marriage because it wraps up this, the story of the gospel. We see later Paul in Ephesians writes that that is actually the purpose of marriage, that when he talks about marriage, he then kind of flips it around and says, oh, no, but this is actually, you know, how Christ relates to the church and vice versa. And and so, it, even though it can feel convoluted when you actually look more closely at it, which we will, that marriage is very closely tied to the gospel. It's meant to illustrate it and vice, and vice versa. And not all marriages actually illustrate this, uh, but this one does, so it warrants attention. So, 
now that we've seen its primary purpose, let's go through it together. But before I do it, I want, if you're a husband, to play through this, a wife, you can play through this, but there's, there's, there's a thought experiment in this. So imagine you're the husband, and David, in this case, and you've been offended, and you are also like David, probably like David, like most men, like like myself, at least relate to this. I want to take action. Who did this? I want to do something. I want to, you know, you want to take action. You want to take an initiative. And what would help turn you around from this focus initiative? You're just in a action. And I literally had almost the exact same thing. Something happened. I was like aroused to do something. What would most modern Christian women, so if your wife listening to this, you can ask yourself, okay, well, I'm seeing my husband's about to do something that seems to me, you know, rash and he seems acting offended. How would you turn it down? And men, think through your own relationships. What have you seen in a comparable situation where the woman has to change your mind on an action or to, to get you to do something that maybe you didn't initially plan on doing? So, let's imagine... A modern Christian woman, not Abigail, trying to persuade David not to do. So, uh, we'll spend more time in, in this. We'll see that some of this derives from the sin and the curse that we talked about. But there, there are books which sort of, from the secular world, which talk about some of these approaches are very common. And so, some of this is rooted in, in literature, secular, sociological, and psychology literature. So, one is shame. Well, David, if you attack, you'll look like an idiot and you'll make us all look bad. It's going to be a time waster. You, you really are just, you know, going to screw things up if you do it. Criticism, sort of more about the person. Boy, you are always so violent. You just can't let things go. David, you just, you're, you're a reactive person. Criticism is a way to get what they want. Um, disregard, like total apathy. Go ahead, whatever. Just get it done. Then come back to get milk and clean up the kitchen. Come back and just do your thing. I don't care what you're doing. So shame. Oh, wow, you should feel bad. Criticism, very related, of critical spirit about the person and what it says about you. Disregard. Yeah, yeah, this thing's important. I see that you're, you know, wound up about it, but whatever. Just, I don't care what you do. Um, bringing up the past to achieve one or more of those things. Well, the last time you went and destroyed a king, you, you were late for dinner. Um, uh, total disrespect. So, something that's sort of related to this. You're always so barbaric. So you can kind of imagine, and look, if when you kind of recall, if your husband, you're like, you know, I never thought, I've never experienced shame or criticism, someone bringing up the past, um, when there's something, then great, super, then, then you don't need to, to learn from this, and, and wives, same thing. If you never do that, it's not a common thing, but at least according to literature, uh, in the secular world, when I look at Christian books about struggled marriages, this is often the pattern. And I think just I've seen it firsthand um, and heard it firsthand. So, um, wives and husbands, ask yourself, when's the last time when 
in a comparable situation where the wife wants to change a direction that she believes is not right um, of the husband to do, gave calm, wise counsel that resulted in a change, but did not rely upon shame, control, criticism, disrespect. At least according to the literature, most women don't know how to not do this. And often, it's because they trained by their mothers, but most mothers, and if they're in a Christian family, maybe this is not the case, but it is in scripture that they should be taught how to care for their husbands, but I think many don't. They teach them how to be a mother, and husbands don't need a mother. They need a wife. Specifically, they need an easer, and helpmate, a helpmate, sorry, like Abigail. So, let's look at some of the specific language that Abigail uses to successfully de-escalate, de-escalate David. And more importantly, he, she not only enabled to de-escalate it, but that incident resulted in David wanting to marry Abigail. He grew in his affection as a result of this. This is key to have both of those. So the first one is she respected him. So from the scriptures, she says, pardon your servant, my Lord, and let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. Now, I'm not saying wives need to say to their husband, my Lord, I'm your servant. But, but I am saying there is a choice of words and just as important tone, which convey, conveys respect and I would say a good sign is if in parentheses and when you're speaking, you it could be filled with, my Lord, I'd like to speak with you. I am your servant. You don't need to say it. I'm not advocating anybody say this, but you can tell what is respectful and what's not. The second thing she does is she agrees that there's a problem. Which, which is often sort of the issue. is like, well, there is a problem, but doesn't accuse him or deny the problem. She says, he, referring to Nabal, is just like his name. His name means fool, and folly goes with him. So she's starting to shift herself to stand shoulder to shoulder with him. She first comes kneeling, sort of a, a posture of, of kneeling by saying servant, then shifts to a standing shoulder to shoulder. Well, yeah, that, that guy is a fool. So I agree, that's not good. Oftentimes, the reaction from wise be, you're wrong. I don't agree with that. That other person is right. You're making a mistake. That's dumb. I don't understand why you do that. Like that's those are the language that that you can read in literature. So then conveying that further, she says she's with her husband. She says, "May your enemies and all who are intent on harming my lord be like Nabal." So she's saying, I, I, "I'm not I'm for you." And, and I hope those things get their just thing, and they are your enemies. And, and I hope there's something that we can, we can do about this, because this, this isn't right, the situation that you're facing. And then she seasons this with, she doesn't want to be the one controlling or demanding the situation. So she uses words, again, that 
we wouldn't, I wouldn't advocate that we need to use in the modern age, but they represent a heart posture. She says, please forgive your servant's presumption. She's not presuming. She knows the answer, that she can judge David's feelings and intent and outcome. Um, and, and But is trying to say, look, I want to say something that disagrees with you. And I'm sorry that this might go against what you want, but I want to convey this. Super great what she did. She's getting at the heart of totally going, the wanting David to do the opposite of what he wants to do and probably feels justified at doing by, by putting this non-controlling wrapper around it. The next thing she does is she sees and proclaims David's good essence. She says, the Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord because you fight the Lord's battles. She still hasn't turned him around yet, but she says, I see that there's something good about you. You are doing things that are honorable. You're fighting the Lord's battles. So, so she's still shoulder to shoulder and saying, oh yeah, you know, I see something good about you. Inside, she's thinking, "Man, why are you doing this? You're going to, you know, you know, you know, kill my husband." I don't think that's a good idea. But she she starts with that. She searches for that good essence. Then she says she cares wisely about the outcome for the husband, and I think this is often really missing. You know, I was I was going over with my daughter um, the tail end of Proverbs, which talks about what makes a a, um, a Proverbs, I believe, thirty one um, wife. And there's all this stuff about her efficiency and her hardworking, but there's something which she talks about um, where where the verse talks about um, he is praised at the gates and. It means she cares about the outcome and how he's perceived and his reputation. And, and that's often missing in very critical, harsh situations. She says, My Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. A caring, wise approach to get what you want. Not to be manipulative, it has to be true is to say, wow, but this may not, if you do this, there might not be a good outcome for you. You will be partaking in something that hurts you. And boy, I know you have a good essence. You do good things. And then the last one is, she trusts God and paints what a positive outcome rooted in God. She says, when the Lord your God has brought my Lord success. She doesn't make it about her. She doesn't say the bad things about him. She like reorients his heart about what is God going to do in this situation. Those can always be used, I think, in almost any situation where a woman wants to change where she believes the husband is doing something that's not right. But notice that it's not completely reliant on her judgment. That was Eve's sin. 
She wanted the ability to make that moral judgment. She wanted the ability to be able to judge um, whether the husband's intent was good or bad. But here she has to adjust it and stand side by side, shoulder to shoulder, and be able to paint that picture. And the answer is not about this script, although I do believe these elements are very telling and very succinct and very applicable. But it's there's something far deeper in what she's doing that's at the root. She is not critical and controlling and shaming. And she still got what she wanted. She literally turned David 180 degrees around, stopped the bloodshed, and she didn't need to do this, which was important. This was, in fact, an impractical act on her part. So notice the, con- the contrast with Eve. She wasn't driven by, well, what's pragmatic? What's efficient? I'm really busy. I need to do something. She wasn't fueled by personal aesthetics. She cared wisely and saw and desired God's hand in David's life and did so with vulnerability, calling herself a servant, calling David his Lord, and sought and saw the best in David, despite what we can even see on the outside is probably a rash, maybe even a heinous act when we take it out of the context as being a foreshadowing of the gospel. She cared wisely and saw in the context of God's hand, this is not taught by the culture. It's the husband doesn't know. You, you know, you know, girl boss him. You you shame him. You get what you want. He doesn't know. And churches teach that. And mothers hand this down to daughters. The flip side is most men can't articulate what they do need and why it's bothersome. And even if they did, they would be shot down. So, wives, your husband is not the enemy, but you're making him into one if you fall into Eve's trap. And husbands, your wife's probably going to see you as the enemy. But if you can, don't take the bait. Together, the culture is the enemy. Jesus has warned us of this, but it's the culture that is training a method of dealing with things as the root cause. So, I, you know, kind of to draw quickly to conclusion, it's from all this, it's, yes, I closed with, what it is to be a helpmeet. I think it's an important illustration. I think there's great power to be an easer. I actually think easership is a way for um, wives to really partake fully in the marriage. And we'll spend more time on that later. But it's bigger picture from this three-part series is first, seek the truth, the, the core, through God and His Word, and acknowledge a lot of it's going to rub you wrong. And actually, that, that's a good start. Feeling that rebuke and conviction and reproof from Scripture is good. When you should worry is if you say, I don't understand it. Yeah, I read this example. I don't understand it. I'm just going to reject it. It's foolishness. I can't grasp it. That's when you should be fearful. But if you're willing to wrestle with it, I think you're on the right path. That's a good way to like get conviction and be convicted and grow. The second was in the same way that God's wisest illustration in the Old Testament points to Jesus, within the struggle, both sides need to think 
and seek out who he is. He is the core antidote to the marital conflict. He is the one who will crush the serpent under his heel. And only if both are able to surrender, find that truth, and ignore the deep, often hiding, elusive sin, and turn that over in faith for God's grace, we get at the crutch of this. All right, until next time.